and welcome back to a new episode of Until Saturday. I'm Nicole Auerbach here with Chris Benini and Stuart Mandel. Got lots of interesting topics to dive into. Stu's coaching grades, CFP news, and Chris has been angering the world with some rule changes that are probably coming that people don't want to hear, like a two-minute warning and helmet communication. So we will get into all of that later in the show. As a reminder, be sure to follow this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. If you give us a five-star review, ask us a question, we'd really appreciate it, and we appreciate all of your support. And you could also leave us a voicemail on our Until Saturday phone line for future mailbags, 316-462-9852. You can also write in your questions for future mailbags on theathletic.com each week. Should be opportunities to get them to us because we always will answer some at the end of each show. Um, but Stu, welcome aboard, Chris. Thanks guys for making the time today. I'm just astounded by the level of planning that goes into this podcast. You guys have both been many times guests on the audible, you know, how, uh, amateurish and, and slapdash our podcast operation is. So honored, honored to be part of such a professional operation. It's a crossover event here. It is. It is a crossover event. Um, and very excited. Uh, we're going to, after we go through the coaching grades, we are going to dive into CFP news from the week. Um, we were all involved in it. So I definitely want to get your guys' thoughts on the extension that ESPN and the CFP are going to agree to. But let's start with the coaching grades. Stu, I mentioned that people are getting mad at Chris. People always get mad at you over these things. Um, I want to go kind of, we'll, we'll group the grades together um, by those who got the same. So there are three A's, if I have this correct. Kalen DeBoer, Alabama, Kurt Signetti, Indiana, and Sharon Moore at Michigan. So I want to give you the floor. Then we'll let Chris respond. In some cases, he'll rebut, um, but we'll have a conversation. I want you to set up why those three coaches got, they got big capital A's yeah. for their grades. Well, I mean, first of all, I just want to say in general, you're grading on circumstances specific to each school, right? If Syracuse hired Sharon Moore, I don't think I'm giving that an A because I'm you know, not sure why that would be the necessary hire for that. But in Michigan's case, I, I just, he had to be the hire and, and any other choice would have not been as well received. You know, with Kalen DeBoer, um, you look at the options Greg Byrne had and you can't tell me there's a coach he could have hired that's better, right? We could say, we could debate whether, you know, there's a between DeBoer and Mike Nor- Norvell, right? Like maybe Norvell's better. Maybe he's not. I don't know. But um, given you're trying to replace the winningest or the greatest coach of all time, what Kalen DeBoer has done at every stop of his coaching career leads you to believe this is about as sure a hire as you can make. Now, whoever got that job is, uh, you know, having to manage or live up to just impossible expectations. And we'll see if he can do that. But in terms of, of who you're hiring and who you have the most confidence in, I have a lot of confidence in him. And Chris Ignetti fits the bill, and I talk about this a lot in the column, and Kalen DeBoer is part of the reason for this, but I've become a big believer in guys who have succeeded at the lower levels. I mean, we've just yeah. seen a lot of examples recently, and and I don't know why more ADs don't do it, but you look at his every stop of his career along the way, including, by the way, James Madison started when he started the job there, FCS. Now people know them as Sunbelt top 25 team last season. And he's he's done it. So I don't have any reservations about him. I mean, Indiana's a tough job. But in terms of like being ready to be a coach in the Big Ten, I have no concerns about that. So with DeBoer in, in Alabama, if, if Alabama had been able to hire Dan Lanning, Steve Sarkeesian, Mike Norvell, do you th- would those have been A's as well? The only one I would have hesitation about is Sark because it's been one year. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of people now kind of lauding him as one of the best coaches in the country and just throwing out like the first eight years of his head coaching career. Great season last year. Mm-hmm. By all indications, Texas is heading in the right direction. But one, it's one season. You know, I think what Norvell has done is is fantastic. I'd probably he'd probably get a similar grade. And the funny thing about Dan Lanning is I don't think he was ever a candidate. He got he got mentioned a lot. He got to milk the moment, but I don't think Alabama was hiring him or he was going to Alabama. 
So those are the A grades. Um, I it's it's fun to see Indiana get one for sure. Um, I think that fan base is definitely rejuvenated. I was on the set of uh, uh, the Big Ten championship game when Kirk Signetti came on and was like, "We'll be playing in this game next year." Um, so he's been talking a big game been already. A there's, big game. I, there's I, a I, lot I, of us. I texted. Yeah, you and I were texting Nicole before that, and I was like, "He's a great quote. You're gonna love when he's <laughs> on set with you." And then he goes and does that, and then he has his press conference where he, he says, "You know, Google me and stuff like that." He's yeah. gonna bring a lot of uh, energy, excitement, and confidence to uh, to Indiana. Which, which it, it also, I guess, thinking of Indiana and Alabama back to back here, it is kind of crazy that. The like 2019, 2020 Indiana staff is now running Alabama football. Mm. I mean, I, I wrote about this ahead of the championship game, but Kalen DeBoer and Kane Womack uh, back together. Got a couple other guys uh, uh, below them as well who were who on that staff. It's really, uh, it's really wild to think back to that. Indiana football a couple years later is now running Alabama football. It is. I guess it, it shows you how impressive it is to go eight and five at Indiana. That, so that's what I was going to say. I think that what is going to make this one a really interesting one to look back on um, is going to be that this is the new Big Ten. The Indiana is not in the East anymore, but everyone's schedules are harder, and it's going to be harder to be kind of in that middle tier of the Big Ten. So that one's going to be an interesting one to track, as well as the point I'll just I'll, I'll throw in there and we can move on, is just that he did bring a lot of his staff from JMU, these are still big jumps. You know, you go from FCS to FBS at the Sun Belt level and now it's the Big Ten. Um, so we'll see what that looks like, what recruiting looks like at that next level. Um, let's hit on some of the A minuses here. So we've got Willie Fritz at Houston, Jonathan Smith at Michigan State. Um, and I think that's it from the Power Five ranks. Uh, so we can start with those two. Those were both names that had been tied to the jobs for for much of the anticipatory period of thinking that the, those jobs were going to open um and both with track records of winning in very hard places to win i think and i think they're both really good fits at the places that hired them you know willie fritz has a lot of has a lot of experience in the state of texas what he did at tulane is amazing another guy who has lower level success and, and worked his right. way up um you know that makes a lot of sense on their end and the reason I, and actually I would want to, I want to hear Chris's thoughts on Michigan state in particular, but the Mark D'Antonio formula was so much about, we're not going to out recruit Ohio state and Michigan, but the guys that we get, you know, to, some of their, some of the best players of his tenure were two stars. And by the time they got out of Michigan state, they were high round NFL draft picks. And that's what Jonathan Smith had to do at Oregon state to, to an even greater degree. Oregon state has recruiting classes ranked in the fifties. And yet they're, they're, you know, top 25 team last year, I think the last two years, um, you're going to see Oregon state guys drafted, uh, this spring. It's a, de he's a developmental guy going to, to, pro to a program that when it's at its best is a developmental program. Yeah. I, I wrote, uh, shortly after the hire that I thought Jonathan Smith was basically the perfect hire, not, not just because of what he's done but because of what Michigan State was. They got so off track in the Mel Tucker era outside of that one year of being very bombastic and, and not having certain things to back that up and being so much about glitz and glamour instead of hard-nosed football. And NF, NF Tuck, never forget. NFTs, NF Tuck, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Jonathan Smith is the most steady, chill down to earth, normal dude you'll ever see as a coach. He, you go to these conference meetings, he never gets recognized. He doesn't look like a college football coach, even though he was a quarterback for a Fiesta Bowl winning team. And everything about that just fits. And under Mark Antonio, not only did Michigan State get the most out of two star, three star guys, but they hit on the four stars and the five stars that they did get. And so I think about somebody like Aiden Childs, the quarterback, four star recruit went to Oregon State, has followed Jonathan Smith over. He, he'll, he'll be the guy to watch, obviously, there. And and one of the big hires he made, he brought over his offensive line coach. I don't know how to say the last name, but Jim uh, McCallzik, I think is how you say it. He is very, very uh, highly touted as an offensive line coach. That is where Michigan State needs to get a lot better. Related, 
Michigan State, only one player invited to the combine. Again, that is something that is going to need to change under Jonathan Smith, and I think that was a perfect fit to do that. Yeah, I agree. I think the best way I've seen it summed up was, um, you know, everyone everyone likes to do little hype videos or like the the coach when you when you hire him, getting him off the plane or walking into his introductory press conference. And someone put a side by side photo of Jonathan Smith on the plane to East Lansing next to like a Michael Scott in the office. And he was wearing like the exact same outfit. And it was just like what every single dude would possibly wear to go into an office job. And I was like, this is exactly what Michigan State needs. Like they needed boring. They needed um, they needed just kind of a return to the basics and to to not that flashy period, as you said, Chris, that they had under Mel Tucker, um, where it was a lot of talk and outside of what Kenneth Walker was able to do and mask, it wasn't a lot of substance. And so I think it was a really smart, good fit, good hire. They wanted one of the things that they wanted in the hire was a return to like that blue collar ethos. And you're hiring someone from one of the hardest jobs in the country who who's been a winner there as a player and as a coach understands in-state rivalries, especially when you're kind of the second fiddle in the state, like all of that, it just checks all the boxes of the types of experiences that you would want for that job. And so I'm with you guys. I think it's a great hire. Um, and I want to move on into the B's let's, let's group them all together. Cause I, there's one B plus Jed fish, Washington. We got a B, which is his replacement, Brett Brennan, at Arizona, and then a couple B minuses, Deshaun Foster, UCLA. So all those three were in the same little loop of uh, job open and needs to get filled, needs to get filled, needs to get filled. Um, and then Mike Elko at Texas A&M, Manny Diaz at Penn State. Um, so the no, one Manny I want to start with. Sorry, Manny why do Diaz I keep head, doing head that? Head coach at Duke. Yeah, even he saw him, and I literally saw a photo with him wearing Duke gear, and it still looked wrong to me earlier today. I got to get used to that <laughs> one. That one is just, being used to. Yeah, especially because he also was a head coach in that conference wearing Miami gear. Like it's just that one's going to take a second. Um, but I, let's start with I'm Mike surprised. Elko. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that's where I was going to start. Stu, B minus. That's low. Yeah, that's that, really I, I would have graded low. that higher. Why, why'd, you, why'd you go with that? Okay, well, no, we're not ganging up on. We're here. not ganging up on you here, but. Uh, but we're kind, of, but we kind of are, kind of. He definitely had a he definitely had a good, um, great two years at Duke. You know, as I mentioned in there, their search was a little weird. Um, they were going to hire Mark Stoops by all indications, and the fans revolted right. on Twitter, and so they departed from. And so, Mark Stoops is a really good coach, and I'm not here to say, oh, you should have hired him instead of Mike Elko. I just don't get why that was the source of a mutiny. And, you know, but we're all in on Elko, who has been a head coach for two years. You know, Mark Stoops has been an SEC head coach for over a decade, and he has the highest winning percentage at Kentucky since Bear Bryant in the 50s. Um, so if you're set, if you're comparing those two, who has the more proven track record of that they would be a high level, that they could be a winning SEC coach? It's Stoops. But I get it. Elko worked at AM before. Um He's coming off a hot season. Stoops is coming off a down season. So I get why they did that. Um, and it's, it's, I think he can be successful there. I come from, when I was growing up, I know you guys are younger than me. Any sort of B was considered pretty good. Well, I mean, you, you also, I mean, B minus. My, my thought with him was the most success that Jimbo Fisher had there was when Mike Elko was there with him. And he has recruited. Uh, that place, he knows that place, which is very high pressure, very booster involved and all that stuff. And you got to handle a lot of different things. So I think like, I don't think Mark Stoops would have been a bad hire. I just think it was, it would have been a low ceiling hire. And with the money Texas A&M puts into everything, you don't want that ceiling to be, be low. And again, this isn't to say Alco's going to work out. We don't know any of these are going to work out. I'm currently going through my annual regrade of the coaching carousel from five years prior. Stu, this includes your uh, oh, no. your grades back then. Most of them are fine, but but some of them, you know, like we all thought Tom Herman would work out in Texas. It didn't work out. So like we never really know these kinds of things, but you know, he, he, he they still lost a lot of talent. They lost Evan Stewart and a number of guys. Uh, so it is a pretty big turnover there, but similar to Jonathan Smith, I think, Texas A&M needed like a back to basics type of guy. And I think Elko does that. 
that's that's where I'm going on that one too. Um, I think it was a name that always made sense. We we knew that maybe A and M would swing for the fences for a bigger name. Again, not to necessarily say that Mark Stoops is like significantly bigger of a name than Mike Elko, but I'm sure there were back channels and feelers for different things. But Elko always made a lot of sense because of the success you mentioned of when he was on the staff, understanding the dynamics. There's a lot of I always think about this because when I was at Michigan. It was when the three years of Rich Rodriguez. And I always think about how there's always going to be potholes that a coach needs to avoid. And you need people who are going to help you avoid them. And no one did that for Rich Rod in Michigan. And he already like walked in the door with factions that were really out on him. But I think having familiarity in being tied to the school, even if it was just as an assistant coach for a couple of years, helps you understand what you need to do and what not to do um, and who you suck up to and who you don't need to. Um, and I just think that stuff's really important. But I also think, again, with this hire, boring. Boring is good. Boring is not guaranteeing national championships and saying that you're going to etch them all in on the trophy on the day that you get introduced. It's um, it's being more realistic and hiring the right people on your staff. I think he did a really good job of that at Duke, even with coaches that he had not previously worked with. Um, I just, I think he's really analytical and thoughtful and I am higher on this. I think I would have gone at least a B plus, um, because I just thought that this was a logical and a mature decision. If this was going to be the choice from the very beginning, um, are there any others, obviously some of these other B grades are relate hires, um, certainly started by Kalen DeBoer going to Alabama. So, you think, Stu, basically that that the dominoes that fell because of that move all pretty much made sense? Yes. Uh, you know, each step along uh, from there, I think Jed Fish was a fairly obvious guy at Washington. You know, um, Brent Brennan had all, was the finalist the last time Arizona when they did hire Jed Fish. Um, to your point, Nicole, earlier about um, how Elko's familiarity with the place and how important it is to have like that support is why I have Deshaun Foster where I do. A lot of people in the comments were like, are you crazy? Like the guys got, you know, why would you say a lot of people predicting, predicting doom for Deshaun Foster at UCLA. And it's like, well, that's what that school needs right now is chip. Ca- the, the, the apathy that has taken over the UCLA fan base where they're that you see the empty stadium shots on Twitter. They were, they were out on chip Kelly. And so when you saw the initial when you saw Bru- you, Chris and Bruce's initial names, and it was like, David Shaw, PJ Fleck. I was like, oh God, that's not going to, none of those names are going to excite that fan base. But Deshaun Foster does because he's a legend there. And uh, and he knows the place, both as a player and an assistant. So that's why I think that's a pretty good hire, why he's in the, in the B range. Real quick, by the way, uh, Jed Fish uh, was on this podcast feed earlier in the week. He talked to Ari in a pretty... A revelatory conversation. If anybody hasn't listened to that, go listen to it. Uh, it was pretty enlightening on what it's like to be part of a coaching change and leave your team and how that goes. I, I thought that was interesting, basically saying he couldn't say much to his players because it would count as tampering, which I guess is like a new part of this I'd never really kind of considered before. So that's something I guess a lot of these guys are going through now. Yeah, and and I think too, sometimes, and we talked about this on the show, but sometimes you know, obviously a fan base is very hurt. Players get very hurt and blindsided. But ultimately, especially with some of these late hires, like then you're going to do that to another fan base. You're going to do that to another team to hire your guy. Um, So we have seen that trickle effect uh, and domino effect at a number of different places. Um, And it's going to be interesting to continue to track like how that, how those changes unfold, especially as you mentioned, Chris, with tampering, the 30-day transfer portal window that opens you know, when there is a head coaching change. Um, it's going to be interesting to see also what's different on the men's basketball side. Just as an aside, Ohio State made a coaching change this week. So a month with a month left in the regular season. So they'll essentially have the portal open for a month heading into the regular transfer portal window of 45 days for men's basketball. So that's going to be uh, weird as well. And I think we'll continue to see how the how it works with football um, and, and how these windows affect decisions too. Um, let's, let's move to the C's. Um, cause I also, um, uh, a little surprised at these two. I think they're both a little bit low. And so this is David Braun for Northwestern at a C plus 
And Fran Brown at Syracuse, also a C plus. So walk us through the reasonings here because you can't you can't hide behind the idea that a B is a good grade. A C is not a great grade. So tell us why these it's not, but also it'd be a very boring column if everybody got A's and B's. Um, Fran Brown is is an interesting one. It's just really hard to. I almost thought about just giving him like a I don't know <laughs> because. I just don't know anything about him, very little about him. Um, and I don't think many people do. Now, he, since he has gotten there, like he's really impressed people. He's made a splash. You got Kyle McCord, who you would have yep. thought, you know, Ohio State quarterback, what, he's going to Syracuse. So, um, you know, he's got that Philly, New Jersey area. Uh, seems like he's got great uh, recruiting ties there. Um, but I have no idea if he's going to be a good head coach. He's just, you know, he was Georgia's DB's coach for two years. The David Braun one is the most controversial. I'm certainly getting a lot of blowback from my fellow. I was gonna say, yeah. I was gonna say for for him to get a C plus when Deshaun Foster got a B minus. Interesting comparison, B. considering Braun actually did coach the team. Um. So again, like UCLA, a little different. They had to make a coaching change. They had to hire somebody in February, right? Their options were limited. Yeah. Let me just say that there was no way they were not going to hire David Braun when he once he got them. I think they hired him after he beat Wisconsin just to get to like five and five. Yeah. Like he was so his, he did such a tremendous job getting them through that. Those circumstances. Like if they had said, okay, con- congratulations, thanks, but we're going with somebody else. Northwestern fans would have been pissed. All right. So I fully acknowledge that. But I also think it's kind of a missed opportunity because you're a big 10 school with a lot of money. I mean, they have a donor who is spending like $300 million of his own money to build a new stadium. Um, as you're going into this era where if you're not a coach in the big 10 and the sec, you're going to want to get into the big 10 or the sec. And they, uh, it's unclear how hard they tried, but they at least had conversations with a bunch of guys like Dave Kloss and guys who would have made a lot of sense there. And either they passed or Northwestern didn't really pursue them that aggressively because they had Braun there already. But uh, yeah, I, the, the job hadn't opened in 17 years. This would have been a great opportunity to go. I, if you told me they got Dave Clawson as head coach and David Braun as his defensive coordinator, home run, right? Fantastic. So, so but here's here's the question. So Sharon Moore was the obvious choice for Michigan. He had coached, he'd beaten Ohio State. I mean, David Braun won a lot of Big Ten games with a roster that, like, I, I mean, even if Fitz had been the head coach, was coming off a one-win season, I, I think – I was wondering if they were going to win a game this year. Yeah. Um, so what's different? Because these are both like essentially internal promotions. Um, Michigan, I mean, you go to the open market and see what Michigan could draw, right? But they they went internal and that one's an A. So so let's dig a little deeper here. Who I know you said Dave Clawson, that you would have wanted someone like him. Um, but does this mean that you don't think that David Braun can win again? Like that something that I don't think he can. It's that I don't know if he can because there's a big difference between like Sharon Moore has been part of that program for six years, I think. So yeah. he has been integral in the whole rise to national champions. And also, by the way, when you just won the national championship, it would make no sense to blow it up, to hire somebody from the outside, blow it up and start over. I just think that we don't actually like I how do I put this? Those those 11, 12, I'm sorry, 12 or 13 fall Saturdays is such a small part of a head coach's job. And that's what we got to see from Braun. And he was very impressive in that. But like now we see how he's going to do as a full-time head coach who has to build his own staff and recruit his own players. Like it's not just about like taking over in July and getting you through the season. Hope he does great, right? Like I always say about these coaching grades, the ones that I don't give a grade to, I hope I'm wrong. I really do. I'm not rooting against anybody. It it is is interesting because I I was wondering like could Braun be someone look you, at some point you kind of had to hire him based on the job he did but maybe you give him a contract that is very easy to get out of if a year later it's not the Zach Arnett out. deal exactly exactly but Mississippi state of Mississippi has that like state law where you can only give someone like a four year contract or something like that Braun I believe got a five year contract we don't know the details because it's a public school because it's a private school right. I am curious about that I do, we don't know what the details are if, if there was a way to get out of it after a year or two if clearly wasn't going in the right direction what's funny is if he doesn't take over as head coach uh, Fitzgerald doesn't get fired and everything um, he, he might have become the North Dakota State head coach because they just had an opening Good as point. well uh, so that could have happened 
and Northwestern may have to pay Pat Fitzgerald some money in that wrongful termination lawsuit. Oh, they're going to have to pay him a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, no so that could it that. could or could not impact what they have. But I am it, it is interesting. Like you think about these low tier Big Ten jobs that have opened up. Illinois went with Ryan Walters. Uh, Northwestern goes with David Braun. I'm sorry, Purdue goes with Ryan Walters from Illinois. Uh, Northwestern goes with David Braun. Indiana grabs Kurt Signetti. Did we expect more from these jobs? Kind of like what you said, Stu. Uh, Could have tried to pull a sitting power forehead coach from somebody else? Or do you think this is just what these jobs are destined to to pull? I think each one was a different different circumstance. But I did think that what we ended up seeing, Chris, was I thought this would be the year you would start to see the acknowledgement that, okay, it's a power two now. Me and too. I got to try to get it. Like the fact that Lance, Le- Kansas has been able to hand, hold on to Lance Leipold this long is, yeah. uh, is pretty impressive to me. But what we did see is, is a UC- UCLA's head coach leave for, to be the coordinator at Ohio state group of five sitting head coaches leave to be assistants in the sec. That, that was more of the acknowledgement of like, yeah, you know, if you're trying to move up in the ladder in the career, I mean, I think those guys are saying I'm going to get more credit if I'm part of a successful SEC program, even as the special teams coach, than I am as the group of five head coach. Yeah, I think that's absolutely a trend that that we're seeing. Um, and that's the reason that there's an open job right now at Georgia State. Um, we don't have time to go as deep into the rest of the grades, so I'll just run through them real quick. Jeff Lebby, Mississippi State. C, Bill O'Brien, BC, C minus, Trent Bray, Oregon State in a really tough position. That's a D. Um, and then there's a bunch of group of five grades. Some some a lot of A's and B's. Uh a lot John of Summerall, good group of five grades. A lot of good grades. John Sumrall, Tulane. That's the only A plus given on the whole the whole rankings. Uh Bob Chesney, a JMU, he gets an A. Sean Lewis, San Diego State gets an A. Derek Mason, Middle Tennessee State, A minus. Pete Lembo gets Buffalo, A minus. Um, and then there's a couple other grades, including Bronco Mendenhall, New Mexico gets a B. Um, so let's just real quick, but while we've got Stu still here, and I want to get his thoughts on the CFP deal in one second, but Chris, I know you have one that you wanted to push back on. Well, there's two. T- two really surprised me. Derek Mason getting an A minus and Bronco Mendenhall getting a B. I think I would have probably flipped those or even put Derek Mason even lower. I think Bronco Mendenhall, like, pound for pound, might be the best hire in the cycle. I mean, that guy's won everywhere, and he ends up getting a job that's one of the worst jobs in all of FBS. I think that was a steal by New Mexico. Um, And then, yeah, Derek Mason, like, I know he's an SEC head coach, but, like, he wasn't a good one. (laughs) <laughs> and everybody yeah. and everybody in Na- and everybody in Nashville s- still doesn't like him for that. And now he's back in town at Middle Tennessee, which needed to ignite the fan base using that Conference USA money to get rid of Rick Stock, still huge buyout. And then they bring in him. I've gotten a lot of lot of mixed reaction from Middle Tennessee folks about that. I think I underestimated exactly what you just said that it, ha- it is still <laughs> so close to Nashville, and there's a lot of. Yeah. I mean, I just thought it was a coup for Middle Tennessee to get a, a former SEC head coach like of all the places, right? It's a pretty obscure program in the, in the grand scheme of things, but he did take them to, he did take Vandy to two bowl games. I think you have to grade Vandy coaches on a huge curve. And uh, the Bronco thing's interesting. I mean, BYU was in the mountain West for the first half of his tenure. So it's familiar territory. My only concern why it's a B and not an A is, you know, he's been out of the coaching for two years and and he left Virginia in kind of a weird fashion. And like, is he totally in, right? Like, is he, fully engaged and back and he's going to be the coach we saw at BYU because it felt like in Virginia, he was half in half out. Okay, Stu, we know you got to run. So I got to get your thoughts on this. Um, We were all part of reporting led by Andrew Marshand, our new sports media reporter about the CFP and ESPN agreeing to a six year extension for the CFP package, basically covering these two years, which are part of the original deal with the additional first round games and then a six year deal That'll pay $1.3 billion per year um, starting in 2026 for the 12-team playoff. This still needs to get approved by both boards. So there's the commissioners and then the presidents that oversee the CFP. They still need to work through issues. Chris and I will dive into them in just a second related to revenue distribution, access, governance. There's still big things that they have to get done. 
But Stu, I want to get your thoughts, basically, especially on ESPN remaining the exclusive partner, um, not having multiple media partners, and just your general thoughts on on how this ended up working out for the CFP, the money itself, and and what it means for a six year deal. I think it ended up becoming a pretty interesting window into the state of the, that sports TV business right now, because as you guys know, like when they first announced this thing in 2021, I think they were expecting a lot more than 1.3 billion, even though that is a lot of money. But I think you know there were there were estimates that it could be closer to two billion. And then I can remember Kevin Warren in particular, but I think other commissioners too, who are very adamant about we're going to spread it around on multiple networks like the NFL does, you know, and like the big tenant does now with its TV contract. And I think what they found was there wasn't as much interest as they thought there would be. And ESPN has a huge incentive to keep it. They are so invested in college football. Um, They had, I think some leverage that they had first dibs on the first round games these two years and it turns out like, you know, Fox and CBS and NBC's, they don't necessarily, they're, they're all going through kind of their own little bit financial issues right now for various different reasons. And they don't have $1.4 billion to throw at the CFP. You know, they, this wasn't a, you know, I saw some comments on our news story where people thought that they hadn't even just taken it to market. And I was like, no, 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 they did take it to market. This is the best offer they got. And it's a lot of money. So I'm not, you know. It's like they're, this isn't the Pac-12 situation by any means, but I don't think it worked out quite as rosy as they thought it would originally. All right, Stu, we know you got to run. Thanks for making the time and yeah, making for me. the trip over here to Until Saturday. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon, and everyone can go read his coaching grades over on The Athletic uh, that published this week. So go get there and be angry in the comments. Do whatever you normally do for things like this. Real quick, real quick. Are you going to update it for Georgia State, which just opened this morning? Did you notice how much I jinxed that? Yes. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Said, You're like, I oh, we think done. the cycle's done. Yeah. And it is not. And you have another group of five head coach leaving to become a position coach in the SEC. All right, Stu, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. All right, Chris, uh, I want to dive in a little bit deeper into the issues around the CFP and this contract. Um, We had to let Stu go, but you and I have a bunch of time here. So I want to get your reaction to this staying with ESPN, staying with one partner, the length of the deal, because I know you have been interested in that and just sort of how sports media rights are working right now. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting that I just pieced together is that a six-year deal that starts in 2026 will end actually the same year that the basketball March Madness deal and now the new women's basketball and the rest of the NCAA bundle with ESPN. Mm. This will all end at the same time now, which is fascinating to me in 2032. But let so, me hear so, your... So you're, saying, wait, so you're saying that if somebody was to split apart away from the NCAA... That 2032 that a is a pretty convenient t- setup there with the contracts. There is a time for a clear break. Yes, a uh, clean break yes. is possible um, without dealing with untangling contracts. Um, but all right, let's let's just talk about it, though. You and I have sat outside countless CFP meetings. We have been asking questions about multiple partners, one network, how it was going to work, what people wanted. And what does it mean that they end up going with ESPN and sticking with them? into the future. I mean, I I think it starts with what Stu said, which was the market is not a good place right now. It's a very different market than it was two, three years ago. We just saw this with the women's basketball tournament. Remember, they thought they could get a lot more money than they ended up getting. They still got a giant increase, all things considered, but it wasn't what they thought it could be a couple of years ago because ESPN, NBC, CBS, all these companies are losing billions on streaming. And now they finally have to make those things profitable. And so uh, things are changing. And so ESPN always came in with the advantage. They've always had the CFP. They've got a long, long relationship uh, with with the CFP, with college football. Personally, uh, I don't think it's good that one network controls the entire thing. I think it would have been good for college football to have Fox or whoever involved uh, just because if you have multiple bidders, multiple partners, you can start to dictate things to them like the NFL does, as opposed to letting one partner dictate things to you. But if Fox didn't come in with an offer that was anything worth uh, considering or putting in, then that's ultimately what it was. And so it's going to be a lot more 
ESPN moving forward. I completely agree with you. I think we've said it before. I also was thinking multiple partners would be healthier because I just think the more people who are invested in the postseason financially means that you're going to invest more financially in coverage of that sport the rest of the year. You're going to be essentially advertising it the whole year. And that's, again, part of the reason ESPN wanted to be exclusive, right? Like they own so much of the regular season, so much of the bowl postseason, and that helps incentivize coverage and makes you the go-to place to consume a lot of their content because of that. It's weird in the men's basketball space that ESPN has so much of the regular season, conference tournaments, and then they just kind of hand it off to CBS. And it feels anticlimactic for all of these basketball experts at ESPN and, and people who cover the sport there. And so I think it's essentially similar to that, um, which, you know, they want to be the go-to place for college football. It's been good to them. It's important to them. And they're going to continue doing it. They will also have the opportunity to sub-license individual games. So there could be games on other networks, but ESPN is controlling that. Now, there are meetings next week. Uh, The presidents who make up the board of managers, which is the highest governing body of the CFP. There's one president from each school and then from Notre Dame. Conference. Oh, sorry. One president for each conference. One president for each FBS conference and um, Notre Dame. That is the group that will eventually have to sign off on the contract. Uh, They have to sign off on any changes. They are meeting, hopefully going to vote on Tuesday about the format. And we've talked a lot about this. Six plus six, five and seven. Six conference champions and six at-large spots. That was approved unanimously before the Pac-12 imploded. So now you subtract one of the power leagues, which, you know, you had six spots so that all five could get in. And then there was an access point for everybody else, the best of the group of five. Everyone except for the Pac-2 wants to adjust this to five spots for four power leagues and then extra at large spots. And it's not just because they want to block out the little guy and have like a Sunbelt champ and the American champ. It's more because these power conferences, these four leagues now, are all getting bigger, and they need more spots for their best teams to participate in this. Um, And that makes a lot of sense. I think I'm surprised this hasn't already happened yet. But Chris, I want to get your thoughts on the latest and sort of why the two Pac-12 schools, or the Pac-2 as I keep calling them, have some leverage here and what they really want out of these conversations. What what they want is to continue to get paid like a power four team in 2026 and beyond. Uh, they also pr- want maybe some voting power as well. The problem is there's no revenue sharing set for 2026 and beyond. That's a whole other thing everybody has to get into. What does each conference make? Right now, all the power five conferences generally make the same amount. That's probably not going to be the case moving forward. And so there's been a lot of pushback from everybody else, all the other conferences toward this Pac-12 situation, Pac-2 situation over holding things up. The commissioners already determined that you need eight teams to be a conference eligible for an auto bid. So it's not like the Pac-2 winner is going to get an auto bid. That's not happening. This is just simply they want to get some more money out of it, not fall down to the group of five level in terms of payouts, which would need to be determined. So we'll see what happens. I mean, we, you and I were in Houston. Everybody thought going into that meeting at the championship game that they were going to move to five plus seven. Everybody was pretty exasperated that they did not. Uh, Mark Keenum, the Mississippi State president on the board, said he hoped to have it settled in a month. It's been about a month and a half, month and a week. So perhaps we get that on Tuesday. Then we have the commissioners meeting on Wednesday in person to, again, get back into that revenue stuff, the governance stuff. What's going to happen in 2026 and beyond? Are the SEC and the Big Ten going to start to throw their weight around? Everyone's been expecting them to. And I think that's that expectation has only become greater in a world where the SEC is adding Oklahoma and Texas and the Big Ten is adding four West Coast powers. Um, so they're even bigger. They represent more schools out of that. Like if you say there's 65 schools that are in the power five, now those two conferences are going to be representing 34 of the teams kind of considered in that tier. 
Um, so they're definitely going to to throw around that weight, I expect. I think the areas that I am interested to see where they land and end up on are, you mentioned revenue, revenue distribution. Right now, in the current contract, which is that first 12-year deal of the CFP, all the Power Five conferences make the same amount of money. And they split about 80% of the money. So the Pac-12 has been making the same amount of money as the SEC, even though they haven't been in the playoff for a lot of these years. Then you also have 20% that split, you know, with the group of five leagues, the independents are in there. And so that's all worked out. We've expected for some time that in a bigger bracket, um, that this would probably reflect more of how it works in basketball, where with the NCAA tournament, you get units. And so you get credit basically for the amount of teams that make the tournament. And then each time they advance. So in that idea, you're already going to be pocketing more money if you're the Big Ten and the SEC, if history is any indicator, because of how many teams would make the bracket in the last 10 years, the way that it's structured. Um, There's been a lot of Big Ten SEC teams in that 5 to 11 range. And when you do all the math and you mock it all up, it certainly shows that those, those teams would be all over this thing. So those leagues would be bringing in more money. But do they want more guaranteed. Do they fight or ask for multiple automatic qualifier spots? Maybe you want your top two teams to automatically make the CFP bracket. Or do you go the opposite direction, which Greg Sankey has said that he would be fine with multiple times, which is all at larges. And do you do that even, you know, without the guarantee that you're going to have multiple teams, but knowing that the metrics, strength of schedule, the way that this stuff works is going to favor your teams and you'll get in there without maybe more of a legal risk with automatic qualifiers. So uh, there's a lot of questions on the revenue front, and then that couples with the governance, which, again, as I explained earlier, each of the FBS leagues have one representative, and Notre Dame has one representative on the two boards. Do you change that? Do you have, right. or do you have more weighted voting, even more so for the Big Ten and the SEC than there is now? Do you, does Notre Dame still have a seat at the table where their vote is essentially equal to an entire conference. I mean, these are things that they have to work out for like big picture topics for 2026 on. And and can I say, I have zero sympathy for the Big Ten and the SEC feeling like they need new things because they're the ones who blew everything up with realignment and everything fell apart. And now they need to change the model that they agreed to because of the situations they put themselves in. Now they need more bids. Now, uh, Tony Batiti's talked about a 16 team tournament. Greg Sankey has floated the idea of expanding the NCAA basketball tournament. Like they're just pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to fix the problems that they themselves are creating through these other moves that they're making. And so that's why it's been very tenuous in those meeting rooms. It's why there's been the last couple of meetings. People have come out of them very frustrated Uh, more than we've seen before because now it's down to brass tacks now decisions need to be made that tv deal needs to be finalized the playoff is happening this year and we'll see if they come to any sort of agreement on these things yes sec and the big 10 can start to throw their weight around a little bit but everybody else is very not happy with the things that they have done over the last couple of years and that's that's how it plays out and the conversation around the ncaa tournament is not necessarily just about should you expand it, but the idea, and this is what a lot of um, Division I conferences and FCS conferences have feared basically for the last couple of years, is that those schools and those conferences are going to essentially box them out of the NCAA tournament so that they don't have those AQs. And that is far more dangerous than expanding the tournament to add more spots for power five at larges. If you get rid of the automatic access for those one bid leagues, you are taking away what makes March Madness special, which is that every single player on every single team starts the season with a path to the NCAA tournament, a path to play for a national championship. And those are the leagues that give us the Cinderella's, the true Cinderella's. So that's, I think, an important piece of this and part of why you and I were both so excited for the playoff to expand in the first place was because now they made it so everyone can access it. Obviously, you'll need a lot of stars to align, you know, for a group of five team and ha- to have a kind of season to make the playoff and maybe to, to get to win games in it. But you have an access point. And so that's what's at stake, I think, with the NCAA tournament conversation and people trying to box out the little guy is that 
it's it's not about the amount of spots. It's about who has direct access to them. And that's what's really important. So we'll get some answers on some of these topics next week. Um, because again, those those two meetings are happening. But we did get answers on a very important topic to a lot of people. Um, it was this, wild. this is the main event of the show. This is the main this event. This is the main of the event. Show. This we is finally, the thing people want. We finally made it to this point. Good news, exciting news about EA Sports college football game. So first thing that happens on Thursday morning is they change their profile picture and they show us what the logo is going to be for the college football game for 2024 or 2025. What is what's it's 2024, but they put the year ahead of time. It's the way the video games have always done it. I don't it makes no sense. It's college football 25, but it's coming out in 24. Okay, right. So the, the, the big 25 confused me. Okay, so then they post an official teaser video. It is 93 seconds. I'm looking on this tweet six hours after they posted it. 44,000 retweets, 84,000 likes. People have been waiting for this. People have been nervous that the game got delayed. We haven't heard a lot directly from EA Sports, but it's coming. We're going to get a full reveal of the game in May. Chris, what did we learn on Thursday about the college football video game, what it's going to look like, how it's going to work? Well, we got the official name, we got the official logo, and we finally got a tease. EA Sports has given us basically nothing since they announced the game back in February 2021, three years ago, and we're finally here. The game will be built on the Some of the stuff I've reported in the past, Matt Brown has reported in the past, things that we know. It's going to be built on the Madden engine, which is always the case but it's not going to be a reskin of Madden. I know Madden is very polarizing in the gaming world. It's going to be its own unique game. Dynasty mode, Road to Glory, these are going to be the key game modes like it was in the past, like we've all played before. Probably will be a transfer portal, a 12-team playoff. I can tell you they are constantly in the process of updating every little thing that could be in the game by the time the season starts, such as some rule changes that haven't even been announced yet. Like they're ready for those in case those happen. You're going to have the most detailed stadiums, jerseys, songs that we've ever had before. It's been years of schools submitting these various assets to get them in the game, stadium upgrades, throwback jerseys, all kinds of stuff. There are plenty of things we don't know though. We don't know for one, how much the players will be paid for being in the game. That has not been determined yet. And we also don't know how much, micro transactions will be a part of this because if you're like me and you kind of stopped playing video games after NCAA football stopped happening, it's a different world out there. Now, if you play Madden, if you play a lot of these other things, there's ultimate team mode, all these other things where you just little bits and pieces, they pull more money out of you in order to get some extra features in the game. And I know a lot of gamers are concerned that that could be in this game. I don't know. We don't know what it's going to be like. I imagine by May, EA Sports said full reveal of the game in May. We'll probably know a lot more details of it by then. But I'm extremely excited to have this game back. Uh, Ubin and I went back through our all EA Sports college football team that we made last year. Guys like Pat White and Reggie Bush and stuff like that. So this kind of stuff gets more reaction than like anything else going on in college football right now. On this podcast, it'll probably be clipped out. The story I did got 100 comments instantly. Everybody is so excited about this. We are tentatively thinking about making a league within the athletic or a group of people to play with uh, that, that listeners or readers could join in on. We don't have the details. We haven't figured that out. We will let you know if it gets closer. I've just had a a few listeners reach out. If there's going to be an until Saturday league or something like that, we want to do something like that. Uh, We'll let you know when we know. It will also get you through the rest of the week until Saturday. So I think it makes a lot of sense because people are going to lose a lot of their productivity in other areas of their life. And it's going to be awesome because I think a lot of our peers got into or fell in love with college football because of this game. And it's about to be back in our lives and it's going to be really important and really fun. Um, Nicole, do you you have a PS5 or an Xbox Series S? Do you want to get in on this? No, but I uh, I am sure that will be uh, procured in my household and uh, that this will be a mainstay um, for my video game playing partner. 
Um, also, just as a reminder, Ari caught up with ESPN's Kirk Herbstreet to discuss the return of NCAA football, as well as Nick Saban joining game day and more. That interview will be in the Until Saturday feed next Tuesday. So if you subscribe to this feed, you'll get notified when that episode and all of our other content publishes. Um, you'll want to check that out for sure. Chris, before we get to our mailbag, wanted to hit on a couple of rules changes or potential rule changes that you have written about this week and have stayed in the news. Um, let's start with the helmet communication, because we also know that the ACC fully supports this potential rule change as well. So run us down the two that you wrote about this week. Yeah, the, the rules committee meets at the end of the month, as they do every year, and um couple things, a number of things are on the docket. Uh, one of the big ones is helmet communication. If you've wondered why the NFL for 30 years has had coach to quarterback communication and college football has not, uh, that's finally about to change. Most likely, uh, if you were following along, um, the big 10 proposes back in the summer, the committee came up with the experiment in bowl games to let uh, teams try it out. But six games had helmet communications, about 12 games, had sideline tablets with video and all the feedback was completely positive. I talked to officials. I talked to coaches. I talked to the manufacturers. They said there were no issues whatsoever technologically and all of that. Like you said, the ACC the other day came out in unanimous support for this pending approval from the committee. So if that happens, if we come out of the rules committee with an official proposal for the playing rules oversight panel, uh, that's going to happen in the ACC and probably most everywhere else in FBS uh, at the least. Um, possible it could get delayed. Maybe they wait till the end of spring or summer to fully nail it all down, all the details. Uh, but this is coming finally to college football into the 21st century. No, this is not because of Connor Stallions, as everybody seems to think it is. But I do think that whole situation with Michigan did garner more support for it even though it was already in the process. Another part of that, as I was writing the story, I'm talking to Steve Shaw, the director of officiating, and he mentions that they're going to talk about two-minute warnings for college football. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I talked to some more people on the committee and everything, and basically they're just they're going to have the discussion. Um, this is something the Big Ten has pushed for as well, um, but... I would be surprised if it happens this year, first of all. But the, the the biggest, there's two big reasons for it. One, we all hate the back-to-back commercial situations with TV timeouts, touchdown commercial, kickoff commercial. And so the idea is, if you had the two-minute warning and you would guarantee that the last TV timeout would come then, there would be less of a push to do those back-to-back timeouts earlier in the quarter. This is not about adding an extra commercial break. I know everybody saw the story and reacted like that, that it was yet another commercial break. No, it's not about adding another commercial break. It's trying to make the game flow better, space out those commercials a bit more than we get them. The other reason is a lot of rules change in the last two minutes. The clock rule, which we wrote about last year, which got a lot of backlash from fans, even though it ultimately didn't do anything. To run the clock after first downs, that changes in the final two minutes. So the idea is, hey... In the last two minutes, a lot of these rules change. Let's have a two-minute warning so then everybody knows the rules are different here on the the way out. Again, this seems to be in the discussion phase. I I would be surprised if they added. It's most likely they just go another year with the current rules that they passed last year, garner more feedback. But that got a lot of reaction from a lot of people I saw, uh, so just wanted to touch on both of those. Helmet communications, very likely. Two-minute warning, I would say not likely at this point. Those are going to be you, important to track those, here. By the way, what, I mean, what do you think I am, I'm, I'm pro helmet communication. Um, I think that that and tablets. I mean, I'm pro continuity across different levels of the same sport. So when I watch men's college basketball and I see halves, and this is the only version of basketball that has halves, I don't like it. And I think when yeah. you have quarterbacks in NFL and you know, want to be NFL players uh, who want to play at the next level, they should be doing what they're going to do at the next level, which is helmet communication and have that option and to work on it that way. I, I've talked to other folks 
not that it matters as much, but it, it would clean up the sideline. Like you don't have people holding these goofy signs and making goofy gestures. You just clean it all up, make it simpler. You would, you're not going to have a scandal like Connor Stallions again with this type of technology. And I think you also just like the thing that bothers me about this conversation or the fact that it hasn't happened is not that it's been 30 years since this has been in the NFL, but that high schools have more technology allowed on their sidelines than college football. Not everyone can afford it, but we need to stop making rules and measures in college sports just because it's a cost-cutting reason to quote even the playing field. Playing field's not level anyway. So with some of this, you can just allow people who can afford to do it to do it. And maybe you put in a rule that both teams which is what in a this game. Is. Yeah. Which, which is, this te- would be permissive technology. You can use it if you want, but if somebody else doesn't, you're still allowed to use it. And that's what more things in college sports need to be instead of just these arbitrary cutoffs, um, which we learned a lot about some of these rules this year because of what was happening at Michigan. The idea of like no advanced scouting was a cost-cutting measure. Like mm-hmm. people are paying... You know, people are paying assistant coaches over $2 million a year. Like, we're past that. We we don't need remember to... Remember the comment Remember the comment John Harbaugh said about advanced scouting? And he'd be like, no, we're allowed to do that, by the way. Yes, <laughs> yes, right. Because it was so right again, after the Michigan stuff. Again, some of these rules have been in place for a long time because they're it would be expensive. And it, quote, you know, kind of keeps things level. No. Like, we can just adapt to where the game is and where technology exists. And do it that way. Two-minute warning doesn't bother me either way. I don't have strong feelings about that. Um, me neither. I do. I, I I like it from a just a routine standpoint when you're watching an NFL game and kind of like triggering, okay, like this is the important part of the game. Um, you know, if sometimes the clock moves really fast and you don't realize it. Um, I, I don't mind that and that stoppage. So um, those will be interesting to watch. Um, there are different steps in the process for rule changes. Um, so be interested to see what happens there over the next month or two. Before we wrap up, though, want to end on two mailbag questions. Um, we'll start with the, uh, I think, more straightforward one. So this is about, from Mark R., he is asking for the reasoning behind appointing Ward Manuel as the committee chair of the College Football Playoff Selection Committee, and he's saying it's surprising that he's seeing that, to see that recognition for an athletic director who has dealt with multiple scandals on his campus um, and wonders if that is going to impact the credibility of the position. Um, I'll start by saying that these types of appointments and these committees don't really reflect what's going on on your own campus. Um, You know, there have been people on these committees that have had to deal with coaching changes. Um, There was Shane Lyons, who was the West Virginia athletic director. He was the chair of the Division I Council, which is like I would say the most important committee in the NCAA right now. And he was pushed out at West Virginia. And so he lost that position, but like, it didn't matter for his decision for the people who decided to let him go at West Virginia, that he was on this prestigious council and he had a prestigious position. And it's kind of the same in the opposite direction that it doesn't, I I don't think it matters what's going on on your campus as they're figuring out different roles within that room it's, you know, six or so, seven or so meetings, trips to Dallas, um, and an understanding of the game and the understanding of how to run those types of meetings and get people to conclusions and votes. Um, so to me, I would just say that that doesn't impact that type of selection. Yeah, it doesn't matter. This is not a committee that's like the best athletic directors. You know, that's not who's on this committee. It's a variety of people. You've got ADs former coaches, former players, somebody from the media. They they just they try to get a wide range of things. So even if you think Ward Manuel's going to get fired at Michigan for whatever reason, that's not really impacting what the CFP makes the decisions. And 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 he gets promoted to the chair because he was already on the committee. And really the I think the most notable job that the committee chair does is talk to the media, answer the questions that we have. And there's going to be a lot more questions now going into a 12 team uh, situation. So that's, that's all that really matters. I I, I don't think it's that big of a deal, um, that, that he is on the committee is not whatever his situation is at Michigan. Like it's not ultimately that big of a role. Yeah. And I wouldn't want it personally. Like I would not want to be the person who has to bear the brunt of the criticism. 
um, and deal with the most of the death threats when exactly. things like FSU happen. Um, so I, I think it is a, an interesting position. It does make you very visible throughout the football season. Um, but I do not envy it um, or would want it myself. I'll, I'll also say again, like he didn't go when they were dealing with the um, the scandal uh, as it was breaking. They were dealing with back and forth with the Big Ten Conference. He didn't go to one of those meetings. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes, you know, athletic directors are dealing with things on campus. They are not able to go and they they pop in virtually or they're making firing and hiring decisions. Like people are doing all of that from that trip anyway and in that room or stepping outside of that room. So everyone kind of understands that everyone's got multiple things going on. And to Chris's point, it's supposed to be a collection of people who do a lot of different things anyway in the first place. And, it, um, and in fairness to and in fairness to Mark R, there have been a lot of scandals under Ward Manuel's watch at Michigan. Uh from less serious stuff like the Jim Harbaugh stuff to more serious stuff like the hockey program and various uh allegations of of abuse and stuff like that. So uh, Ward Manuel is facing a lot of pressure for a lot of things that are a lot more than just what his coaches are doing. So that's it, it's it's fair to note that. Yeah, I would just say that they're kind of separate and not directly related to each other. Um, yeah. What happens on a campus and then what happens on that selection committee as well. Um, okay, last mailbag question. I'm teeing you up on this, Chris, from Eric W. What is preventing the group of five schools from breaking away and forming their own playoff or championship? Unv- uh, undoubtedly, this would be a valuable TV property. I'm thinking about last season. Who wouldn't want to watch App State, JMU, Boise State, Liberty, Tulane, Memphis, Toledo, etc.? And it seems like a better option than all of these schools competing for one spot in the big playoff just to get killed by some SEC giant. You know, it's a question we've gotten for many, many years, and the reason is money. You're going to get a lot more money in the CFP than you are by doing your own thing. And, and that first and foremost, that's what that is. But it's not just the money from the CFP. Nobody involved in the group of five outside of NIU athletic director uh, uh, who wants uh, Sean Frazier, who wants to do a group of five playoff. He's about the only one. Um, Nobody wants to voluntarily declare themselves second class. And that's what this would do. This would, this would create a real literal divide between power four and group of five. And when that happens, you don't pay as much money for those buy games in the non-conference and you don't make as much money that way. These teams want to at least have the image that they are competing to be at the very top because that means more donations, that means more ticket sales, that means more television money, means more playoff money. And they're not going to break off and do their own thing at their own choosing. Do I think that divide is coming at some point? Yeah, probably. But I don't think it's going to happen through them voluntarily. They're going to want to stay at the top level of college football for as long as they can. And for good reason. I I think back about, we were talking about Washington state and Oregon state using whatever leverage they have in CFP conversations and really everything, right? Their legal fight. Everyone wants to be considered part of the power conferences and they want to be in that grouping no matter what. And that's essentially what Oregon State and Washington State are trying to do. They want to be treated as if they are power conference members, even though their revenue will not be what it is. And that, again, they might be treated differently when it comes to like CFP and and their share of that and access points because it matters. It matters to those campuses and those college towns and how the school markets itself and admissions and all of those areas. So that's really what a lot of this is about. It's part of why when, you know, Chris, we've talked about like Charlie Baker's subdivision proposal, Project D1, like a lot of people are not wanting to have to force a decision where you opt in to an expensive but uppermost level of college sports, which is that like $30,000 per athlete for half of your athletic department. But but people are going to feel pressure to do that, to be in the upper echelon because you just don't want to volunteer yourself as someone who is not. Um, So I agree with that in in that line of thinking. I would say never say never to any of this stuff because college sports are changing so fast that we don't know what it's going to look like five or 10 years from now. Um, So, you know, maybe this type of idea will eventually happen down the road. Uh, We will, we will see Eric W. We appreciate the question and you can Oh, go ahead. Keep, keep yeah, keep an eye as we said at the beginning of this post 2032 when that playoff yeah. 
contract ends, who the heck knows what's coming after that? That might be the time. Yeah, I'm glad we discovered that everything aligns for that year because now I'm going to be hyper fixated on that. Um, But as a reminder, thanks for those two questions. We will take the best of the mailbag questions every single week on Until Saturday. Um, You can find prompts on theathletic.com on our college football page. You can leave a voicemail on the phone line, 316-462-9852. As I said, you're going to want to be on the feed next week. Kirk Curbstreet joins Ari. And we'll be back with more until Saturday. The best way to get our show is to follow us on whatever platform you get your podcasts, like Apple or Spotify. And also, you know, while you're there, you might as well give us a five-star review. We appreciate it. For Chris Vanini and Stuart Mandel, thanks to Stu for joining us. I'm Nicole Auerbach, and we'll talk to you again soon, my friends.